Amen. I'd like to invite the kids forward, grades K through 5. Why don't you guys join me right up here? Let's do that. <laughs> you ran right by your dad. He's trying to give you a high five. Hey, come on up, guys. Hey, Brandon, Lena, and Lincoln. What's up? Hi, Brooke. All right. We're going to pray for you guys as you go off to children's ministry time now. Would you join me in praying with them, for them? Join me in praying for them. Oh, Lord, thank you for these little ones. You have entrusted them to our care, both as family members, as grandparents, parents, cousins, aunts, uncles, and then, Lord, you have entrusted them to our care as the church, as your church, your body, to teach them your truth, to teach them about Jesus and show them how to fall in love with Jesus and have a relationship with him, a forever relationship with him. And so, Lord, as they go off now, bless their teachers Make these students' ears open to hear your truth, to hear your word, their hearts open to receive you today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, sweetie. Should I open it? Is it what is it going to be? Is it a picture? Oh, thank you. That was really sweet. <laughs> she gave me a little heart. It's really sweet. Aww. It's awesome. Love it. Uh, just a quick, quick update before I jump into preaching. Um, some of you were aware of this, but not, not everyone uh, was. This, uh, this last week, um, every year our, uh, our denomination, and some of you are probably like, part of a denomination? Whoa, that's news to me. Um, our denomination is called the Evangelical Covenant Church, and uh, each year we have a pastor's midwinter conference. And so this past week, uh, Pastor Matt and I were at the Covenant Midwinter Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, in Louisville. Yeah, so this, this, uh, usually it's in Chicago, it kind of has been rotating around, uh, but this last week, yes, we were in beautiful Louisville, trying to still figure out how to say that word right. Apparently it's not Louisville, um, although, didn't plan on saying this parenthetical note, I attended the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory, I went there for a tour, which for a baseball guy was incredible. And it blew my mind that we always call it the Louisville Slugger. That's just the way you call it growing up. And then you go to the town where they make them and it's Louisville. I don't Anyway, enough about that. Um, I, I mostly am bringing this up. Why is he even talking about this? Mostly bringing this up to say thank you. Uh, to say thank you. I think it's important for you to know as a church that uh, this is something that you do for your staff and something that you let us go to. And uh, we just are so appreciative. Matt is now, <laughs> he had the privilege of coming home Wednesday and then turning around and going to camp on Friday. Oh, I remember those days as a youth pastor. <laughs> Lord be with him. Um, yeah. Um, at first I thought, coming back and having to preach is going to be really hard. And I thought, oh, coming back and going to junior high camp, I'll take preaching any day. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so he is there, uh, but, but we uh, connected while we were in Louisville together, had, some, had dinner, and just, it's a wonderful time of connecting with old friends, longtime friends, b- making new friends. Um, I met some great people who are planting churches in the inner city of LA that I didn't know, didn't even know existed, that are coming into our denomination, doing incredible work downtown LA, excited to make further connections and inroads with them and see how maybe even our church here uh, in Simi Valley can connect with some of these people doing really incredible uh, kingdom work 
uh, in the city. Uh, just, just what a joy to, to meet these people. Um, we have a very diverse, diverse, diverse denomination, and it just makes us all the better, all the better to hear other stories and di- where different people are coming from. And it's just a wonderful time. Uh, the theme this year was on leadership, and it just was really fun to hear uh, some, some great speakers. Bill Hybels, who's a pastor of a huge church in Chicago uh, called um, Willow Creek. That's what it's called. Holy cow. Um, he was there the first night and just sharing some leadership insights. And he, he does these huge conferences all the time. And so to have him at our kind of little conference was such a blessing to hear somebody speak about leadership and uh, people, people really encouraging uh, the church at large and leaders to speak into the next generation of leadership. Uh, last thing I'll share is there, there was a study recently that Barna came out with looking at um, the state of the pastor rather than like the state of the church or how's the church doing, which a lot of research has been done. Really curious about how healthy are pastors and where as a, as a nation, and they were looking at um, mainline, which are your, your Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, and evangelical and non-denominationals, which we fit into uh, the, the evangelical denomination side. They were looking at the pastors and uh, realizing, and this is, uh, they don't know what to do with this, uh, but that the average age of pastors has actually gone up 10 years in the last decade. And so what they're finding is that we're not training younger people enough. And you're probably all looking like, uh, we hired you and Matt, so don't tell us about young leaders and taking a chance on young leaders. Um, but just to say that as a whole, uh, I was challenged, encouraged, all of the above to really think about how are we as a church raising up young leaders? How are we as a church looking at our youth and, and calling them to something greater, uh, possibly even calling them into vocational ministry, and how are we helping everyone see that their calling in life, wherever God places them, their work life, their family life, is a, a vocation, is a ministry. It is a ministry. Everything you're doing is a ministry. I heard somebody say, um, your workplace is your worship place. And so just want to encourage us, uh, you probably hear more about that as time goes on, but mostly wanted to say thank you. Thank you for uh, allowing Matt and I to go to this conference uh, it's, it's such a blessing to us. We, we come back uh, fueled and uh, eager to get going again. And so, thank you. Thank you. Uh, we are in uh, week four, I believe. Week four of our sermon series called Not Like Me. And this week, we are looking at John 4. If you want to follow along, John chapter 4, The Woman at the Well. John chapter 4, The Woman at the Well. This is, uh, I'm, I'm going to read the text, and I, I'm, I'm giving you a forewarning that it's a long text. And I even cut, trimmed off some of the edges to focus on where I really want to focus today, which is Jesus' interaction with this woman. That's really where I want to focus us. I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to read it a bit slowly. Sometimes I will confess, when I get to a long text like this, I'm like, I'm just going to read it real fast for you all so that we can jump right in and start preaching. And I'm going to read it slowly. I found this last week as I was studying this text, that in reading it slowly, I saw some different angles So I want to read it slowly in the hopes that maybe something would jump out for you that you haven't noticed before in the interaction uh, between Jesus and this woman. Uh, Particularly, what I want to invite you to do, if you can, I know this doesn't work for everybody. I was talking to some pastors over the the week and telling them what I was hoping to do with this text, and they were like, yeah, that doesn't work for me, but it's great for others. Um, I want to invite you to try if you can, and this is the part that doesn't work for everyone, to try to kind of put yourself in the story. You can either, you could be the woman, you could even be Jesus if you were so bold. 
Or maybe you're just an onlooker. You're a bystander who's watching this event go down. But try, if you can, to kind of pick up the sights and sounds, the smells of what's going on in this text. Okay, so John chapter 4, and I'm going to be picking up in verse 5 and ending at 30. So he came to a town, that is Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you, ha- you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is a fascinating story. I don't know if if it grabbed you, but what I found this last week, uh, as I was reflecting on it and reading it kind of slowly and trying to have my eyes open, that's kind of a theme uh, of this series and a theme of this morning, trying to have my eyes open to what did I miss? What had I missed in this text before? I tried to do this, uh, and this is a rather long text to try to do this on, but uh, I introduced this over the summer. There's a, a, a way of reading the Bible called Lectio Divina 
which really just means divine reading. Uh, sometimes people get caught up with like, it's Latin, it must be scary or otherworldly. It just means divine reading. It's not that special. But it's a way of slowly reading the Bible and almost letting the words jump off the page at you as if you never read it before. It's the idea that we believe that if the Bible is inspired, is the Word of God, and God's Spirit is still moving, and, and God's Spirit is within us, that God can speak to us anew from His text. Amen? That God can speak to us still. It's not a dead text, some old book. It's a history textbook that we just go, hey, learn some things, study some things. No, it's alive. And the words can jump off the page, and you can, you can receive them as if for the first time, even when you read a story that you've heard thousands of times, hundreds of times. And so I, I decided to kind of press in and go, what is it? What is in this text that I need to hear for the first time? And what I found grabbing me over and over again was all the words of the woman. It was her statements that were leaving a profound impact on me. So first off in verse 9, the interaction starts and she says, just point blank, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What, how can you ask me for a drink? It sets the whole story up. And then you have this parenthetical reference John provides. It says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's like if it's not clear enough, you need to know this interaction that's taking place is wrong. Culturally, religiously, people would have looked at this and said, this is wrong. These two people should not be talking. And yet Jesus initiates the conversation. And so she just says point blank, you know that this is wrong. Why are we doing this? Conversation goes on and she speaks again in verse 11. Sir, you, you're talking about this living water thing, but you don't have any way to get water out of the well. Are you crazy? I mean, it's kind of like read between the lines is what she's saying to him, like really interesting, this whole living water thing. You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get me water? Why are we still having this conversation? You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water that you're talking about? And Jesus explains, as you heard in the text, that he is the living water and he can provide it. And she says, pressing further into the conversation, that she wants this water he's talking about. She wants it. Sir, give me this water. We started at a place of, why are you even talking to me? This is wrong to, I want what you're selling. I want it. Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, there's still maybe a hint there that she's still talking, thinking he's talking about like real water, like maybe a magic bucket of water that never runs out. But she's curious. She keeps the conversation going. The dialogue doesn't stop. Sir, give me this water. And they keep going, and, and that's the point at which I was going to reflect on a little bit where Jesus kind of flips the script and says, well, why don't you go get your husband? Whoa, come on, Jesus. That's like a little low blow right there, right? Come on. Go get your husband? Like, where did that come from in the whole living water conversation? And it's that whole conversation, that back and forth, where the most remarkable thing happens where, again, she says... After that conversation, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. She has eyes to see. She sees Jesus for who he is. You are a prophet. And then they talk, they have this little interchange about worship. 
And then the last thing that jumped out to me was her saying, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She, she starts to say, I, I do have this understanding of faith out there somewhere. And Jesus, the, I don't know if you, if you know how big a deal this is. This doesn't happen hardly ever in the Bible where Jesus point blank looks at somebody and says, I'm the Messiah. And he says it to a Samaritan woman that he never even should have been talking with in the first place. That, that, that's just gripping me. It's gripping me. And, and all of it led me to ask the question, where I want to begin this morning, really, as I, as I kind of think through all of this and help us to process and imagine ourselves in this situation, who is this woman? Who is she? I want to start there. Who is this woman? What's interesting to me, and, and I'm going to step into kind of uh, some of the studying I did, because I think it's important to, to get a little bit of a background. Uh, this woman, uh, we get this sense that she's a Samaritan. Okay, we know that. Samaritan, Jews and Samaritans don't interact. We heard that from the text. She's a woman. If you caught that part uh, it, it, where the disciples come back and are like, why is Jesus talking not only to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? So there's a, they, they shouldn't be interacting, male and female. They should not be interacting. And then the other thing we know about her, the only other thing uh, that the text provides before this interaction with her and Jesus is that she's coming at noon, and many have said that she's coming at the hottest part of the day because she's trying to avoid everyone. So there's something about her personal life, something about uh, maybe it has to do with these, this five husbands business. We, we're, there's something going on where she has some shame in her life. She has some shame. She's lost a sense of dignity. She's not seen in a good light. So she is coming at noon to avoid the crowds. So she doesn't have to interact with other people. What's interesting to me is uh, sometimes, and this is a part again that I, I started really thinking about, who is this woman? So who is her? Those are the things we know about her. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's had this five husbands business. The guy she's living with now is not her husband. And, um, and she's coming at noon to avoid shame, people, avoid, trying to avoid others. And so what's interesting is that a lot of uh, pastors, as I looked at some commentaries and other, other messages and other posts, they really paint her as kind of a, like, a, like she's probably a prostitute. They really paint her in this extremely negative light. And so you have images like this. That, uh, I, I found this picture, I thought it was very fascinating that um, you know, her midriff is showing, there's some certain body parts accentuated as if uh, you know, this is who she is. This is the picture we have of her. And I found that to be very fascinating, going like, wow, is that who this woman is? This woman who's really pressing into trying to know Jesus, trying to, to get this living water. She really wants it. She really needs it. She understands how desperately she needs life. Life. Because life, humanity has maybe been robbed from her a little bit. But the other side of the coin is that the same artist painted this same picture like this. Because it's possible, and this was an interesting thing I found also, it's possible that we make a jump to who she is that's not necessary. It's possible that the, the five husbands bit is that she has had a horrendous life. People have passed away. People have left her. That she didn't, she didn't do anything necessarily wrong but that these people have abandoned her or she's had just tr a tragic life. Tragic. 
And it's possible that in that culture, the guy she's living with now is more of just like a relative or somebody or just the, 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 the guy who was willing to take her in and provide and protect her. Because in that culture, it would be important for a woman to have somebody protecting her. But the guy must not be doing such a great job because she's out at a very, very vulnerable time of day trying to avoid the crowds to get water. And so it's interesting trying to really wrap my mind around who is this woman and why does this matter? I think it matters because it has everything to do with how we start to see other people. I started to realize that there are other people, there are certain people that I jump to the image on the left. I jump to that image when I think of them. That they must be bad, they must have done something wrong to end up in a situation like that. They did certain things. And it kind of goes back to the deserving, undeserving conversation about the Roman centurion of, well, some people, if they do these things, maybe just deserve to be painted in the picture on the left. When in fact, there are some tragic, tragic circumstances and situations, people have been dealt terrible hands. They have been dealt terrible hands that they did nothing to have this happen to them. Are you following me? Are you tracking with me? Where there's, there's just people growing up in different places, different circumstances. They've been dealt this hand. And if we've been dealt this hand, and, and from my experience, sometimes, as a, as, especially as a young Christian and as, as a person who grew up in the suburbs of Omaha, Nebraska, a high school that was 2,000 kids with like five kids of color in the whole school, I, I, you could look at certain areas and be like, man, those people over there, what are they doing? We, we got it right out here. What's wrong with them? And you kind of get into this like, well, you don't, I, I never thought until later in life to try to understand all these other circumstances they were growing up in, all the, the cards that they were dealt that I wasn't dealt, that I didn't have to deal with. And so it's, it's fascinating to think about this woman and just at the beginning, at the onset, to kind of get all of these uh, preconceived notions out there. Who is she? Well, got these five husbands that have died and now she's living with this other guy. She's a terrible person. Or is there something else happening here? And it's fascinating, as we're going to see, that Jesus, when he learns about the five husbands thing or when he knows about it, he doesn't learn about it, he knows about it. That doesn't cause him to step away, does it? It causes him to press deeper into this conversation because she's revealing Revealing something at the depths of who she is, at the depths of who she is. She's revealing it to him. She's getting vulnerable with him, and it causes him to come closer. Some other interesting tidbits about this uh, text. This living water business. What is this living water thing about? This is one of the longest interactions recorded in John's gospel. Do you believe that? This this. Interaction with this woman that Jesus shouldn't even be talking about, there's just like a side route, like, hey, they were walking along, and Jesus was like, you know, let's not do what all the other Jews do and skirt Samaria. It would be like an extra nine miles, and this is what they would regularly do, take an extra nine-mile jaunt to not go through Samaria. And this time, Jesus says, let's do it. Let's go there. They go there, and this is one of the longest interactions Jesus has with somebody in the Bible. And what's interesting, there's so much why it's long is because she keeps, there's a give and take. She keeps asking questions. She wants to know more. And Jesus is kind of speaking in this like code language almost. These almost riddles about the living water and uh, I would give you something that this water, and it's just strange talk 
Where elsewhere, people, when Jesus starts talking strange like this, say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Just a couple chapters later, Jesus is going to start talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. And a whole group of people are like, yep, had enough. Not part of this movement anymore. The chapter just before this, you had the interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night under the shroud of darkness to ask Jesus some questions. And Jesus launches into another weird metaphor there. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, huh? So you're telling me I have to like get back into my mom's belly? And Jesus is like, no, you're not understanding it. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to understand it either. This is crazy. And Nicodemus walks away, and we're not really sure what happens to Nicodemus. He kind of walks away. And, and many believe that Nicodemus and this woman are actually compared to one another. They're put back to back. These situations, these stories are back to back. So you have Nicodemus who should get it. He should get it. He is a religious authority, a man, and men in this culture knew everything, and women didn't know anything. He's a man, he's a, he's a Pharisee, religious authority. He should have got it, and he's the one who says, yeah, I don't get it, and walks away. And this woman, this Samaritan woman of all things, coming at noon to this well, she's the one who keeps pushing in to the questions, keeps pushing the dialogue, and she's the one, not Nicodemus. Oh, Nicodemus was so great. No. She's the one who gets it and who Jesus eventually says, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Whoa. I'm just saying, if you were a Jew and you were reading this, I think you just melted. You'd have like brain melt. Like Nicodemus didn't get it and, no, 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 Jesus. You're telling me a Samaritan woman got it? That's too much. That's too far. It's too far. And in John's gospel, seeing is a big deal. Seeing is a big deal. And so when Jesus, or she says to Jesus, I see you are a prophet. John's gospel, seeing, we, we've seen this uh, in other sermons, in other te- texts. Seeing isn't just on the outside seeing. Seeing is deeper. That There's this seeing motif. And so she presses into the dialogue and she starts to see who Jesus is. She starts to see who he is. One commentator says that, that this, this interaction shows us that it's not about having all the answers. Instead, faith is about dialogue, growth, and change. If we think we have all the answers, if we're content with our doctrinal constructs, if we believe more in our convictions than the possibility of revelation, we will be left to ponder whether or not God will choose to be made known. We'll have to wonder when And if we will finally feel confident enough, secure enough, knowledgeable enough to invite others like she eventually does to come and see. See, this Nicodemus' thing, he's trying to work it all within a construct that already exists. And when Jesus doesn't quite fit it and starts talking about this weird stuff about being born again, he's like, yeah, I think I've had enough. You're outside of my construct. This is weird. This is not the way it's supposed to be and he doesn't want to understand it, but this woman is willing to dive deeper and in her diving deeper and continuing the dialogue and saying, okay, that sounds a little strange, tell me more. She sees Jesus for who he is. She sees Jesus for who he is. Sir, give me this water. And then there's this abrupt change, right? This abrupt change where uh, as she asks for the water, then Jesus says, why, why don't you go get your husband? 
Uh, one, I love this. This one commentator said, like, uh, it's as if she was saying, like, uh, I thought we were talking about religion. Why are you now getting personal? You know, I, I thought that was funny. Because we think of religion as being very personal. Like, you don't talk about religion with people. She was very comfortable talking about religion. And then when Jesus flips the script and says, go get your husband, that's when it's like, whoa, I don't know that you can go there, Jesus. You're not allowed to go there. I don't know if you're allowed to do that. We could talk about things on the surface. Maybe you can imagine this in your own relationships. It's okay to talk about things on the surface. I had a lot of conversations this last week at a pastor's conference that are just these like theological ponderings. And you get down to this place where you're like, but let's talk about real people. This is all interesting. I love doing that, by the way. But you have to get to a place where you say, like, well, how does this affect real people? And so Jesus in this instance is maybe saying, like, okay, we're talking about these kind of things about living water and these kind of nebulous like, ideas out there. And then he says, let's get real. You want this living water to come and change your life. If that's what you're really asking for, let's talk about your life. Go get your husband. Whoa. Don't have a husband, she says. And then he goes on to tell her everything she ever did. But what I love about that, what I love about that, and I think I've got to skip through a couple slides here. What I love about that is that he does not pull away. If anything, he gets closer. This, this reveal, if you will, this reveal about her life, the inward workings of her life, the stuff that's the messiness of her life, doesn't cause Jesus to say, yeah, you're right, get your act together and we'll talk. It causes him to press into the conversation and go, okay, now we're talking about real stuff. Now we're talking about real life. Now the cards are on the table. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. He doesn't pull away, if anything, he gets closer. And this is the part then that leads her to be kind of her statement of faith, if you will. Her statement of faith, her, her evangelistic strategy is not to go and tell people, okay, I met this guy, he offered living water, here's the way it works, step-by-step -step breakdown. Her method of evangelism sounds kind of scary to me. It's to go out and tell people, there's a person who told me everything I did. There is a person out there who told me everything about my life. And she says that in a positive way. I don't know about you. But if somebody <laughs> told me, was like, I know everything you've ever done. I wouldn't be like, oh, let's hang out. <laughs> Tell me more. I'd be like, you're creeping me out. And I don't want you to know everything I've ever done. Leave me alone. In fact, I remember, I remember as a kid, somebody told me, and maybe you've heard this too. I think now I'm, I'm realizing this is some kind of crazy theology that's out there. I heard people in a, it's supposed to be an encouraging way, but it came across as a really creepy thing of saying like, anything you ever do, this is church people, good church people, anything you ever do, stop and imagine that Jesus is right there with you. Would you keep doing it? And it was used as like a scare tactic. Like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't do hardly anything that I do if I knew Jesus. I would just have to like sit and stare into space most of the time and be like, oh man, I hope he doesn't find out what I'm thinking. Like, shut my brain off. Don't look at anything. But it was used as this like, imagine, you know, you better get your act together. 
You think you're going to mess up? You better think about Jesus being there with you. <gasps> and then when I was a young youth pastor, I would say this to kids. You got to think about like Jesus is right there with you. Would you watch that show if Jesus was with you? Would you listen to that music if Jesus was with you? Would you do that with that girlfriend or boyfriend if Jesus was with you? And that's when it starts to get really creepy. Like, you better, imagine, you better leave enough room for Jesus to sit in between y'all. Move away. You go to the high school dance, chaperone, and get in like, leave room for the Holy Spirit. Come on. I want to see this kind of dancing, not this kind of, come on. What if Jesus was here? And I, and I remember telling it that way to kids and thinking like, I oh, mean, maybe it's kind of interesting. But in a way, it was kind of this like, like Jesus becomes scary. He's out to get you. He's out to catch you doing something wrong, so you better watch out. Better be careful. And ultimately, what it leads to is what we've been talking about in this whole thing. It's this, it's this construct of, so you better do more right and less wrong. Because the scales, you want the scales to balance so that on judgment day, Jesus will go, oh, remember those times I was watching you and with you? You did way more right. Congratulations. And that, that faith construct gets a little bit scary and it gets a little bit about us. Can you get cleaned up enough to be accepted by Jesus? Can you do enough good to be accepted by Jesus? Can, I, can we do enough? Can we ever do enough? Can we ever know enough right things to be accepted by Jesus? I don't want him to go away from me if I do so many bad things. And here in the text, she uses this, he told me everything I ever did in a positive. He told me everything I ever did, revealed himself to me. It's changing my life. It reminded me of Psalm 139 where David talks about, he says, you searched me and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts. And I've read this sometimes and been like, I don't want God to know all my stuff. But David seems to be saying like, oh, that's the intimacy of our relationship with God. And I think that's what's happening here in this story too is there's an intimacy where Jesus is saying, I know everything about you. And even in knowing everything about you, I want to know you more. Not I want to, now that I know everything about you, I've had enough. There's a sense that, that Jesus has really taken in her whole, her, everything she is, her whole person, her whole humanity, and not just said like, everything's fine, you're good but said, I'll still be in a relationship with you. I, the Messiah, I'm the Messiah standing in front of you, he says. And you, you can have this living water. Her statement of faith is, he told me everything I ever did. He told me everything I ever did. And it, and it just reminds me, as I start to kind of wrap up, it reminds me of Romans 5.8, which says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we get this wrong, and, we, and again, we get back to this like, yes, Jesus died for you, but you kind of have to get your act together, and then you can receive the salvation. Instead of the, the gospel truth throughout Scripture, that is, when you were powerless, when you could do nothing to save yourself, when you were still a total wreck, when you were like this Samaritan woman, Jesus came and hung out and died for you. That's the gospel truth. And then he changes our lives with this living water and, and worship. And this, we don't have time today to get into all of that. And so the, the end here is kind of, well, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do with this? What is this 
faith that she is showing us, what, what do we make of it? A twofold reflection as we move to communion. Communion, twofold. I think that there's always this, uh, in the Scripture, at least in my reading of Scripture, these two things. One, you have put yourself in the place of the woman at the well and imagine yourself interacting with Jesus. That's one. That's uh, maybe what Jay was talking about earlier of, can you allow God to see you as he sees you? You know, right away, she had this shame, and she said, yeah, I've got these five, I've, I had these five husbands. You're right, I don't, I, the guy I'm living with isn't my husband. And again, that doesn't cause Jesus to walk away. It causes him to press further, to press further, to change her life, to change her life. So how do we picture ourselves? Maybe you're at that place where for you, you are kind of saying, does Jesus really love me still? Really? After all the thing I've done? And you have to ask yourself that. In this, in this text, Jesus moves toward her, not away. And then the second piece, the second piece always in these, in these th- stories for me is, how then do we imitate Christ? What do we do? If we are to imitate Christ, how do we interact with people like the woman at the well? How do we have our eyes opened? Do we, do we press closer like Jesus did, even when it's uncomfortable? When we find out something about somebody and we go, oh, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Does that cause us to press in and say, but I think Jesus can change this person's life like he changed mine? Or does it cause us to go, that's uncomfortable, too much for me to deal with, good luck? What do we do? What do we do? Are there places we are avoiding because they are Samaria's? Or people we are avoiding because it's culturally taboo? Are we taking the extra nine-mile route to bypass Samaria Or are we going to be like Jesus and go right into the fray? Final thing. I uh, last week talked a little bit, a little bit about going on these brave, courageous adventures. And I felt a little bit afterwards, like as much as I can say that, I had to ask myself, am I doing it? Am I doing it? So I had some really fun conversations, not fun, fun's not the right word. Challenging conversations this last week with folks who have been missionaries uh, in Lebanon uh, folks who have traveled the world, folks who have interacted uh, uh, with undocumented peoples and who have undocumented people in their church, trying to figure all of this stuff out. And it, it's, the challenge is for me, and, and that I would ask for prayer for, is to, to figure out how to... So Jesus enters the fray. He doesn't skirt around it. And I can be bold and say, hey, that's what we got to do, but am I willing to do it? And so I, I want to challenge us all and, and ask for you to pray for me, pray for our church, pray for others as we discern what it means to find our Samaria, this place that maybe we've been avoiding, conversations we've been avoiding, people we've been avoiding, and figure out where are those places where right here within our community we can step in like Jesus would step in. We can move closer like Jesus moved closer rather than pull away. Would you pray with me? God, that is the the place of reflection is to to ask where are those places where we can step in right here in our our community, right here in Simi Valley. Where are those places, Lord, in Ventura County, in L.A., in our state, and then, Lord, in our world where we can step out in faith, step out of our comfort zones, be vulnerable, and, and in doing that, Lord, find that you're right there with us. 
you're opening our eyes every step of the way to see people and also, Lord, to see ourselves as you see us. Lord, give us boldness, bravery, give us words, give us ears to hear, Lord. Lord, there's already great organizations, great people doing your kingdom work all around us. Help us to see them. Help us to walk alongside organizations like Action who are making a difference in our community. Lord, help us to see there's so many others we could name, Lord. Children's Hunger Fund. There's all these others, Lord, Samaritan Center, to, to see their good work and to walk alongside them, Lord. Give us eyes to see the Samarias all around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.